The content of CPR Unplugged is designed for entertainment purposes only and is not intended as mental health treatment or medical or mental health advice. Details such as names and locations may have been changed to protect individual privacy. Hello and welcome to CPR Unplugged. My name is Jess. I'm your host for this episode and I am joined today by Stephen Johnson. Hey Stephen, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. So I'm going to let you introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit about um, where you're currently at in life right now. So I am retired now. I'm two years past the retirement date. I retired in early 19 from Avondale Fire Rescue on the west side of Phoenix. And I would I spent 14, there, 14 years there as a firefighter paramedic. So now I own my own construction company. I have my own nonprofit, aspirations to run for Congress. Uh, I got four kids. I'm married and two dogs. How does that sound? Perfect. All right. Enough? That's awesome. <laughs> so one of the reasons I wanted to bring you on is because you've had some unique experiences um, as a first responder and specifically how mental health kind of came into your story. But I was wondering if we could start before that. Tell us a little bit about your early experiences as a first responder. It wasn't what I thought it was going to be. So early, early in life, I watched all my friends applying to become police officers out in California when I lived out there and they were super happy with life. They were just glowing. And I was at the time working as a pastor and I was miserable and nothing wrong with being a pastor. It's just that at that time in my life, I had no joy in my own heart. And I watched several of my friends get hired with LAPD and these guys were just glowing. I mean, just coming alive. And so I said to myself, if that's, if that's what it means to come alive, then that's what I want to do. So then I, for four years, I attempted to become a police officer and every single freaking door possible closed on me. Speaking of 9-11, which is tomorrow, as we're recording this, 20 years ago, I was in downtown LA finishing my medical exam for LAPD when about halfway through it, they shipped me out of the building because we were in a pretty tall building. They were afraid that that building was going to get hit and I got sent home. And um, a few, few weeks later, my whole process with them shut down. So I thought that if I could become a cop, like all my friends were, then I would be happy. And turns out, thank God that did not happen. Every door closed. And then um, a flyer came in the mail for EMT school. And I always wanted to go do EMT school. And I had missed it early on, got married, got distracted. So I'm like, dang it, I'm going to go do this. I left work one day, got into EMT school, and the lights went on. Everything was, I loved it. I just was glowing. I had felt like I found my place. And from there, I got the best internship that you can get in California. I was working with Huntington Beach Fire as an ambulance operator. And then I went to paramedic school at Daniel Freeman out in Inglewood and got hired out in Avondale. I had actually had two job offers, one with the city of Mesa and one with the city of Avondale. I mean, what more could you ask for? Two job offers, right? And then six months in, life took a huge turn. I was in the station on July 3rd, 2006, and the tones went off. And it's one of those tones that all the first responders know. It's that whirlybird tone. It's not a normal tone. It's a loud obnoxious tone that says, Hey, you're about to go to the worst call of your life. And I had no idea what it was. So we 
got in the fire truck and we took out out of that station like a bat out of hell. And I said, where are we going? And they said to drowning. And I had no idea that things were about to change for the rest of my life. So you went on this drowning call um, and are you comfortable sharing any details about that experience? Yeah, absolutely. So I come through this house and I see a mom clutching five or six kids and they are not just crying. They are wailing. It was a swim party on a hot, hot July day. And one of the kids went missing and they couldn't find him for 10 minutes. And he was down in the water for a long time. And so I come through and I see this mom and these kids screaming, crying so bad. And then as I come through and turn uh, hook, a right hand turn, my eyes lock on the little three-year-old boy who his grandfather had pulled him out and he was laying on the side of the pool and immediately my mind flashed. And for the next 15 minutes, as we were on that call, which felt like forever, all I saw was my daughter who was the same height, same age, same build, just different sex. And I was literally working on my daughter through that the whole call. We did our CPR, pushed our drugs, loaded the, the, the little boy up onto the ambulance gurney. We drove down the street to the helicopter that was had landed from um, PHI Medical because there was no trauma center in the West Valley at that time. So we had to go downtown. I helped the helicopter paramedic load the little boy on. I backed off. They took off and I broke down and started crying. I had no idea that this is what first responders faced. Nobody told me about this. I should have known because early on in my days with Huntington Beach Fire, we ran a call for a kid who fell off the monkey bars and broke his arm. And I was choking back tears on that call with that kid. So I should have, I should have just known that like, Hey, kid things are going to be a big deal for you, but I didn't know. And in those days, it was never okay not to be okay. So tell us about that. What was the response from others? So I got shamed that day. I got, I got kind of mocked and made fun of, and the guys were kind of upset because someone had broke down and now we were getting pulled out of service and we're going to have to go talk to some people, crisis response team. And, um, it was, it was pretty tough, you know, it was pretty tough for me. And the, the tough deal at that time was then they, the crisis response team that came, they wanted me to talk to a young gal who was probably, I don't know, 22 years old. And th at, at this time I'm 32, right? I've got three kids, uh, the, probably the fourth on the way, whatever, you know, and this gal had no kids. She didn't know what it meant to be a mom. She was volunteering her time, which that's great. I have no problem with that. And she was help trying to help, but they almost forced me to talk to her and I just reared up and, and resisted and I was angry. Um, was that one of your first uh, interactions in your life with some sort of mental health uh, intervention or treatment or anything like that? Yeah. Yeah. That was, that was it. That was the first time that I had come to realize that I wasn't okay. But because of the culture of the first responders at that time, you weren't allowed to show weakness. You weren't allowed to show emotion. You weren't allowed 
to demonstrate any type of vulnerability. You just weren't. So I just said I was okay. I just bottled it up, right? And, and I locked it down. 60 days later, I'm standing in the station again. August, hot day, the, do the bay doors are up. We're cleaning the station. It's the night before we're going to go home. Five cop cars come screaming past the station, like fast, all five. And I look at the guys, I go, well, we're going somewhere. And sure enough, immediately the tones go off and a car heading up 107th Avenue goes past Thomas, gets to the canal that's about 200 yards past Thomas. And when it hits this canal going north, it hooks a left, takes out all the guardrail flipping, goes end over end and lands in the canal nose down. A mom and two twins, about four years old, all dead. That was trauma number two, two in 60 days. And I thought I was fine. I was okay. I thought it was just a bad, bad call. And um, I spent the next 10 years with undiagnosed PTSD and call, stacked on call, stacked on call, stacked on call. And I could tell you story after story of dead kid who got shot in the head, who was bleeding, who firemen bigger than me walk into a room and go, holy, you know what? What do we do with this? And we all froze. And that little kid, believe it or not, that kid haunted me for several years. And I would be in a normal conversation, having, just talking to people, talking about baseball, surfing, or just anything you talk about in life. And there, this little kid would show up right in front of me on the ground. Like physically, I would see him on the ground. And so I tried to like, all right, talk to him. Like, okay, dude, what do you want? Like, why are you haunting me? And I, I just heard nothing, right? And so I just stuffed it. I stuffed it. And the poor guys of Avondale, like I turned into a real a-hole. I withdrew. I went through a divorce. I was difficult to work with. And there are, there are so many great guys at Avondale who, who put up with way more than they should have with me. But I had no idea what was wrong with me. It's such a weird situation to be in because you know you're experiencing something. And on one end, you're being told, talk to this person, right? So they're kind of validating that something is not right. But then on the other end, they're saying, no, you're fine. Like you need to just knock it off. Right. It's such a mixed message. Like, how do you process that? Like what kind of sense do you make of that? Yeah. So let me back up on that call and that the call with the traffic accident that night, they took us to the Wendy's truck stop on 99th Avenue to sit down and talk to another wonderful lady, but who's not a trained therapist who doesn't understand trauma, just a super sweet, awesome lady. And the captain at that time looks at her and says, I'm fine. These two are effed up. You need to talk to them. Mm. So we're doing therapy at Wendy's at a truck stop at 1030 at night. Yeah, that didn't go over too well. So a lot of anger built in me and I just began to withdraw. And I would go to work throughout the years and I would hide in my room 
and I would pray to God. I would say, God, please don't let the tones go off anymore. Just let me sleep through the night. And I would just isolate myself. Anything to not have to do what it was I was called to do or face what I knew was hurting inside of me. I didn't want to deal with it. So I just withdrew and became difficult. And like I said, there's a lot of great guys who tried to help me, but um, they didn't know. They didn't know what to do. And I didn't know, to be perfectly honest. What kept you showing up at work every day? What kept you from saying, screw this job, I'm getting a different job? Or I felt stuck. I didn't have any other options. I didn't know what to do. Like I wear a freaking helmet to work. You know what I'm saying? It's not like I can go work at corporate America and make big bucks. You know, like I know how to swing an ax and break a door. I mean, I was a paramedic, but that's about all the, I mean, I had a bachelor's degree, but I didn't know what to do. I felt stuck. I felt like I had to provide for my family. So fast forward the story. I start to figure out oh, this might be PTSD. You know, so I go say something to one of my chiefs and I say, Hey chief, I think I might have PTSD. I don't know, but I think I might. And he listened. We talked for about half hour until the tones went off and we're sitting in his office and he goes, you just sit right here. Don't move. And he took me off the truck immediately, sent the crew on that call and he sent me home. And then HR called me the next day and said, you need to go see somebody and do a fitness um, for evaluate, like a do fitness for duty. Like, are you, can you come back to work? And I'm like, holy shit, they're going to, they're going to yank me off the truck. Like I'm going to lose my job right now. I opened my mouth at the wrong time. I said what I shouldn't have said. Now I don't have a job. So I went to that lady who they sent me to, who was super great. Awesome lady in North Phoenix. And I lied my rear end off. I told her, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't have flashbacks. I don't have nightmares. I'm okay. I just buttoned up, clammed up so that I wouldn't get fired. I got back on the truck and there I existed. And then in April of 18, those stupid tones went off again, another drowning. And I came through, I was the charting medic on this time. It was my job to write things down. I came through the house, same situation, people screaming, people crying, came around, saw the next little kid on the ground and I lost it. I started crying. I could not contain my emotions. I physically broke down on the call. The 911 guy who was called for help was the guy that was needing help. And that didn't go over well with my crew at all. That was that a turning well. point for you? Yeah. Yeah, that was a, that 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 was that was a big turning point. I um so we go to the hospital. It takes me two hours to finish a single chart, which normally can take me 15 minutes, two hours to do this call. We go back to the station. The battalion chief is kind enough to take us out of service, buys us some pizza, and he says this to us. You guys okay? And everybody around the table goes, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. And it gets to me. And excuse me, you can, you can edit this out if you need to. I go, fuck, no, I'm not okay. I want to go home right now. Right now, send me home. That was day one of our 48. 
So I left, got home about 7.30 at night. 12 hours later, the phone rings. It's my chief. Hey, Johnson, you coming back to work? I'm like, confused. Like, why are you calling me, chief? I haven't seen anybody. I haven't talked to anybody. He goes, I don't know if I can keep you out sick another day. I'm like, okay, I'll be in. I went back to work. And you're years now into your career. I'm, I'm 14 years in to my career at this point. So you've been through one divorce. You've got some kids now. Yep. Yep. How is this, or is it affecting other areas of your life now? Oh, hundred percent. Yeah. hundred percent. My, my poor daughters. Today, the relationship is still tough with them. I mean, divorce does not help at all, but they had to live with a dad who had PTSD, who had no idea what was going on with them. Like they just didn't know. I was just mad and angry and pissed all the time. And I, I didn't know what was wrong. And I, I wasn't happy at home. You know, my, my first wife and I were not getting along. That's why we're divorced. But I had my, my little babies in the hall bathroom at our house in Chandler. And they were all just in a ruckus screaming. And I was like, I couldn't handle it. The, my sensory was pegged. And I screamed at them to be quiet. And I kicked the wall behind me. My foot went through the drywall. I'm like, F it. Might as well go through the rest of the wall. Then I put my through, foot through the other side of the drywall and just destroy the bathroom and send them out. And then I remodeled my bathroom. And that's what they grew up with. And today the relationship is still, it's super difficult. And even though I've healed so much and I've come so far, it's still tough. And I still reach out to them and I don't, I don't always get what I want, you know, or what I would love to have with them because they too have to go do their own work. And I, and I'm not responsible for that now. And I've done everything I can to make amends with them, but that's, that's the reality of growing up with a, a first responder who has unresolved trauma. How else did that show up for you? I know when people hear PTS or PTSD, um, a lot of times they think of the nightmares, the flashbacks, the, like you mentioned, sort of those waking visions, but what else did that look like for you? Well, for me, it manifests itself in anger and irritability. And then I just hit it with pornography. That, that was my coping mechanism. A lot of guys just turned to, to alcohol. There's a lot of, a lot of first responders who are drinking real hard. And for me, it wasn't booze. It was just pornography, anything to not, to not have to feel. Mm. And it works. It's, it's an escape. And, And you know what? Here's the deal. Pornography, gambling, even working more OT, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Alcohol, all that stuff works and it helps until it doesn't help until it grows legs of its own. And it brings its own demons to the table that you now have to fight on top of the PTSD. I mean, like I have so many letters after my name. I had ADD, ADHD, PTSD. I mean, I got more freaking initials than um, the guys at the CDC. You know what I'm saying? Like I'm a full fledged doctor in this shit and it's just taking its toll on me. And I had no idea. I had no idea the scope of what was going on. So here, here's, the, here's the beauty for me, though. And this is where help came. So, so as, as real and raw as I am, I'm a big believer in God, right? And I, 
I absolutely believe that God was right there with me in the midst of this. So as I'm knee deep in this now divorced, my then feet now feet, my wife now, who was my fiance then is a flight attendant for American airlines. She is flying back from Washington, DC to Phoenix. She's working first class cabin in that first class cabin is a name, a lady named Libby Timmons, who's a trauma therapist who works with first responders out of Tucson, Arizona. She's flying back from, um, from DC from a meeting she had there. So she has to get up and go to the restroom. The restroom's full. She starts chatting with my wife and you know what you guys, you women do. You guys just start talking, right? <laughs> you guys just start chatting it up. So my wife says, well, what do you do? She, and she goes, well, I'm a therapist. I work with first responders. Oh, my fiance is a first responder and off to the races they go. Right. And then Libby hands my wife, Carolyn, her business card. And Libby says to me, Stephen, I never, ever carry business cards. I just happened to have a business card then. That card then comes home, gets set on my desk. My wife says, hey, I met this lady. Tells me the story. You might want to call her. Guess how long I sat on my desk? I can imagine a while. Four months. Four months. And my wife would come in and go, you call her yet? Like, no. Okay. What do you think the resistance was for you? Uh, you know, I don't know. I, I know that at the time, I had a, I had an eye infection going. So I was off, I was off work for a little bit of that and stuff, you know, I had to get surgery on my eyes because I was getting infections in my eyes, which that's weird. You know, I switched contacts and everything. I don't know. I think maybe I was scared. It's fear of the unknown, but you know what? For a first responder back then to have to admit that they needed help. That, you don't do that. Like that is not okay. Now today, the guys are way ahead of the game. There's so many great guys advocating for mental health in the first responder world. There are so many great chiefs. And even though I've shared some really tough stories about my department, I'm telling you, there are a bunch of great guys in the city of Avondale. And if any of those guys are listening, they, they need to hear me loud and clear. There are some stellar men out there who are advocating for the mental health of all these people. Okay. So let's just be clear on that. But back then, that wasn't the game, right? It wasn't okay to experience all that. So I call Libby. I meet her at Starbucks. We sit down and she says to me, we're having a trauma retreat next week in Salt Lake. You need to go. I'm like, Libby, how much is it? She's like three, 3,500 bucks. I'm like, can't go. I ain't got no money, right? Even though first responders make money, we don't have any money. Because we all have boat payments and toys and houses and wives and kids, right? And no first responder has that kind of money they want to spend on therapy. It's just, it's not on our radar. So I said, I don't have it. Libby says, well, what can you come up with? And I said, well, I don't know, 1000 1500 max. She goes, that'll do. I'm like, you sure? She's like, yeah. Okay. Let me just tell you the, the testimony of how this woman is. So she goes and gets it approved. And then the, the big company we're work, that she's working with at that time reneges on my, my deal. And she comes unglued on them and fights and advocates for me. 
and forces them to honor the, the agreement that we made. And, and then they have to. So I fly to Salt Lake. I may meet three other cops, two from Colorado, one from uh, Arizona here. And I have the best week of my life, like hands down the best week of my life. And I unloaded my trauma and that began the process of healing. It was amazing. What do you think was so profound about that weekend? Imagine being in a dark place for 10 plus years with no hope, with no under, like not even a freaking understanding of what's wrong. You can't even define it. You just know that you're not okay. You don't feel okay. Nobody likes you because you're just a jerk. And so for the first time, I found three dudes who liked me, accepted me, and were like, dude, we get it. And that's not to say that the guys at Avondale didn't accept me. There, there are plenty that, that did there. But for the first time during that week, I felt like, okay, there's hope. I can beat this thing. I, I can manage this thing now and get better. So that was just, that was the start. I mean, it was amazing. And, and, and here's, here's what I, in light of all that's been going on politically right now, this is what I was thinking, especially on this weekend, 9-11, right? So 20 years ago, 9-11 happens, right? And I, I just want to equate this. And then we go to war with Afghanistan for 20 years. And we lose countless men and women for 20 years. And now look at our results. Look where we're at. Okay. And, and this is not a political talk. I don't care what side of the aisle you're on, but just look at our results. What do we gain? What do we gain in 20 years? Nothing. Tomorrow, the Taliban is going to swear in their leaders on 9-11 into their new government. So we fought 20 years and got what feels like for many people, nothing. We lost everything. Now, here's the deal. First responders fight 20 years for a pension. That's the golden number. When I hit 20 years, I get a pension. I can retire. But this thing called trauma and it being unresolved in our lives, if we get 20 years and that trauma kills us and we're not well, what do we gain? We're just like Afghanistan. We lost. Our job at that point, if we don't deal with this thing called unresolved trauma, we lose. And I'm telling you, countless first responders today are losing the battle when it comes to trauma. Because they, A, they don't know what it is and they don't know how to heal it. Let me just tell you how big this number is. So in 1980, the CDC started tracking HIV stats. And for 20 years, HIV was the biggest health crisis to hit America. And every year, just about 39,000 men and women in the United States contracted HIV. For a grand total of about 775,000 people in 20 years. So two decades, the biggest health crisis, 775,000 men and women, HIV. There are 1.5 million first responders in the U.S. today. The Rutherford Foundation says that at least 33% of first responders alone in the next 12 months are going to struggle with mental health, depression, anxiety, thoughts of suicide, anger, all that stuff. 33%. You know what that number comes out to? Five, about 525,000 men and women 
who are going to need help in the next 12 months alone. Mental health is the new freaking American crisis. And it's killing first responders. It is, it is killing us 14 times faster than the HIV epidemic ever did. That's how bad it is. And the, and the fallout are wives, sons, and daughters who have no idea why their mommy or their daddy is struggling so hard. So you created this foundation. Um, and if you're okay with it, can we segue into that? Because it's the work that you're doing is just really cool. Yeah. So I created a foundation called IH2 and IH2 stands for I'm healing too. And I, I named it like that for on purpose because we're all healing from something, right? I don't care who you are, where you're at. You're probably healing from something in your life. Mommy, mommy issues, daddy issues, trauma issues, divorce issues, kid issues, whatever. And so what I do today is I advocate for first responders. I get to be a voice for those who don't have a voice because the, the, the men and women who are first responders today and who are knee deep in this trauma, guess what? They don't, they don't have the words that I now have and they don't have the platform that I have and they, God, they cannot say what I get to say, because if they do, they're going to suffer the repercussions of it from their department. Now, there are many great departments out there, but some of the departments out there in PD and in fire are horrible. And they treat, they, they treat their own worse than they treat people they run on. That, that is the God honest fact. First responders eat their own. They treat the drug addict who just killed and murdered somebody with more respect and dignity than we often do our own partner. I heard someone make the uh, analogy the other day that being a first responder is like entering a wood chipper. <laughs> yeah. So I'm doing a training for Pinal County a while back. And I said to him, let me ask you this. If your partner came into the guy or the gal you ride with every day came and said, Hey, I'm really struggling with thoughts of depression and suicide. I don't, I can't figure it out. I'm just down. And I asked this question. I go, would you, then trust your partner as much as you do prior to that. And they're like, no, hands down, no. And then I said this, then I said, then how could you ever expect your partner to come to you for help? I wonder how many people would even know what to say, right? If someone came to you with that. Yeah. Well, that's, that's fair, right? That's fair. And we may not know what to say. But the answer is, and I'm not going to trust you anymore. The answer is, I'm not going to turn you in so that you lose your badge and gun, right? The answer is, I'm not going to shame you to a place where, and call you name or whatever, right? Or ridicule and make you the black sheep of the family. That is not the answer. Even if you don't know what the answer is, that is not the answer. So what I do in my foundation today is I advocate for those who, who can't advocate for themselves. And I point first responders to a place of healing and then every once in a while, we put together our own trauma retreat where we will bring people in five or six max first responders, and we'll work with them for four or five days and help them unload the trauma like I did. So a lot of what I do is, is give, like I'm teaching at state fire school tomorrow morning, 9-11. So I know by the time this comes out, we'll be past that point probably, but um, 
that's what I get to do. I get, I get to teach and speak and I get to help make sense of the chaos. So that's the, that's the big part of what our foundation does. Where can people find you? Yeah. So we go to our, go to our website. It's IH2, the number two, IH2.org. And then there you'll see our story and there's a place on the backside of it to donate and support us. And I don't take a salary. So all the money that anybody donates, we just use to help first responders. So I, I don't have uh, I, I do have a Facebook page, but I'm, you know, I gotta be real honest. I hate social media. <laughs> I just despise it. So if anybody out there is listening, wants to volunteer some time and be my social media guru, I will take you hands down. Come on. Awesome. Thanks so much for joining us today. That's some powerful stuff. You're welcome. And anything I can ever do. If um, I just want to say, if, if you're hearing this and you, you want to have me come out and speak, then just get a hold of me. You can go to my website and you can see my email there and you can just reach out to me and I'll, I'll come speak. I'll come do a training. Or if you're a first responder and you don't know who to turn to and you need a safe place to turn, my phone number is on that website. My personal cell phone is on that website. You can call me and talk to me anytime. All right. Thanks so much for your time. You're welcome. Got questions or ideas for the podcast? Or perhaps you have your own story to share. We'd love to hear from you. Email us at podcast at crisisprepandrecovery.com or call 602-281-7795. You can also find us online at cprpodcast.podbean.com or wherever you prefer to find your podcast. CPR Unplugged was produced by Crisis Preparation and Recovery, Inc., the intro and outro music was created by Rob Wilson. The CPR podcast team includes Tamara Lamontine, Ben Edwards, Laura Kaufman, Rob Wilson, and Michael Magarinos. Special thanks to Jason Spisak for technical support.